morning. Welcome again. We are in the book of Leviticus. This morning we'll be here until Easter. We'll go through it in big chunks. Uh, I hope you had a chance this week to at least try to read these seven chapters. Um, encourage you as we go through to try to do as much of the reading as you can ahead of time. Um, I'm going to read from the end of the book of Exodus. This is off the very beginning of the Bible if you're trying to figure out where you are in the Bible. We're almost at the very beginning of it. I'm going to read from the very end of the book of Exodus, and then I'm going to read the first little chunk of Leviticus. Um, these are purposefully um, tied together. There is an overarching story and arc to what we call the Torah, the, the five books of Moses at the beginning, and there's a reason that it comes at the very beginning of the Bible. So I'm going to read from the end of Exodus and into the beginning of Leviticus. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. That's where I'll start. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So now this is the beginning of Leviticus. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head, and the fat on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to this part of your word, uh, confused by it, baffled by it, perhaps, uh, maybe offended by it. And yet, Lord, we know that it is your word, that you have given it to us as your people in order to teach us, in order to train us, in order to discipline us, help us to see that it too, just like every other part of your word, is precious, that it's uh, more valuable than all the gold in the world. Most of all, Lord, it is valuable because it shows us your son, Jesus. And so make that true today as we go through this precious corner of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the many tragedies of the last couple years have been the rules against people visiting those whom they love in hospitals and nursing homes. In the same way that now in the last couple weeks we are watching hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian refugees being separated from their homes and their families, so also 
for the last two years, we've been seeing the weak and the vulnerable being separated from their most important relationships. The story of the Bible is a story about how mankind has separated itself from God. But even more than that, the story of the Bible is about how God has graciously brought us back to himself. The Bible is about God taking the homeless and the estranged human family and making a way for them to come back home with all of the joy and the beauty and the peace that comes with that journey. The book of Leviticus seems very strange to us today. Much of it no longer applies to Christians or to our societies in the way that it applied to ancient Israel back then. It is filled with many rituals that seem totally irrelevant to the world of Tesla and TikTok. But the book of Leviticus is a vivid and a visceral illustration not only of why and how we are separated from God, but most of all, it's a vivid illustration of why and how God has generously made a way for us to come back home to Him. The entire book of Leviticus explains the function of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was an ornately decorated tent containing a few pieces of furniture. I gave you guys a cheat sheet. I put my graphic design skills to the limit this week. I drew a picture of the tabernacle for you. That's the whole book of Leviticus, explaining how that tent works. The second half of the book of Exodus, which is what just came before Leviticus, the second half of that book is about how God gave Moses the blueprints for this tent up on Mount Sinai and then how Moses built it. Leviticus and the tabernacle at the center of Leviticus, they are meant to point us, most of all, to how Jesus would be the ultimate and the final revelation of God's merciful plan to bring his estranged and homeless creatures back to himself. I'm going to cover seven chapters today on the various kinds of sacrifices that God commands the Israelites to offer there at the tabernacle. I'm going to start big on the broader message of the sacrifices, and then I'm going to zoom in a little bit on the things that all these sacrifices have in common with each other, and then we'll zoom in some more by looking at what makes each of them somewhat different from the other ones. And so first, let's take a really big high-altitude view of what these sacrifices are communicating. They're communicating a big problem, but they're also communicating a big solution. The first thing we have to know, if we're going to understand what God is saying here through Moses, is the big problem that makes these blood sacrifices necessary. The book of Leviticus, like we've just read, opens on the heels of the ending of Exodus. Moses, at the end of Exodus, just finishes building the tabernacle, and then there at the end of it, God comes down to dwell in the tabernacle. Uh, he makes himself uniquely present in a way that he's not present other places on earth, in this glorious flaming cloud. If you've been reading along from the, in the whole Bible from the very beginning, this is actually the first time since the Garden of Eden that God is dwelling on earth. 
But you also read there at the end of the book of Exodus that not even Moses is able to go in. He's like Adam and Eve after they rebelled against God. They were not just ejected out of the Garden of Eden. They were actually also blocked from coming back in. Part of the point there is that even Moses, great holy Moses, even Moses is a sinner who deserves God's judgment. He cannot go in. Much of the point here is that God is an offended party. As you dig into the sacrifices, you repeatedly hear that they make it possible for somebody to, quote, be accepted before the Lord. Uh, They also repeatedly say that the animals are going to be slaughtered before the Lord. The Lord is present there. Uh, You hear over and over again that their blood is to be sprinkled and poured out in different places before the Lord. When somebody sins, even when it's a sin against another person, Leviticus chapter 5 tells us that that person has incurred guilt before the Lord. Everywhere you go, God is present as the main character. You repeatedly hear that somebody, when they come to God in the right way with these special sacrifices, that they will be forgiven. Not by themselves, not by the priest, not even by the person that they've wronged, but by God. God is the main character, not just in Leviticus and in the entire Bible. He's the creator, he's the king, he's the judge, the father, the husband who has been wronged, who is offended. And so he gives these instructions about which sacrifices are acceptable and how they are to be offered. Because you see, if Adam and Eve, or if Moses, or you or me, were to just waltz back into God's presence on our own, we would be immediately crushed under the weight of God's wrath. The reason for that is that death and sickness and mortality are now at the core of our existence, not just physically, but also spiritually. The modern world has been shocked by COVID and now by war in Ukraine. We have been shocked by their vivid reminders that we are not in control, that our stuff and our money and our technology and our leaders cannot save us from death and destruction. But COVID is a physical reminder of a much worse sickness spreading in our hearts. And the war between Russia and Ukraine is a physical reminder of a much worse hostility lurking among ourselves as humans. This spiritual sickness, this relational spiritual hostility has been there all along, even when we could trick ourselves by masking it with entertainment and drinking and career and family. The Bible says that all people are dead men walking, and so we cannot enjoy the joyful presence of God who is not just alive. It's not just that God happens to have the attribute of being alive, but the Bible says that God is, in a sense, life itself. It is his very being to be alive. And so the reason that God judges sin when it comes into his presence is not because he's grouchy. The problem is not on his end, like there's something wrong with him and he needs to lighten up. The problem is on our end. 
It's something like, I suppose, like how when somebody is starving, you cannot just give them a big, healthy meal, as good as it is, and as much as they need it. Because in all of their weakness, in all of their frailty, giving them this good food will actually kill them. The big message of Leviticus is that God is alive and we are not. That God's liveliness must and will obliterate our deathliness. That's the big problem behind the book of Leviticus. In our sinful mortality, we cannot enter the presence of the living God. But here's the big solution that Leviticus emphasizes over and over and over again. God has provided a way for us to enter into, to enjoy His life. The very first verse of Leviticus is God speaking, God calling out to Moses from the tent. Moses has just been blocked from going in. He can't get in. And God starts talking to him. God tells him how he and Israel are going to use the tabernacle in order to come be with him, in order to approach him. And all of it, this is really important, even though it's assumed everywhere, all of it is God's idea. It is not humanity's idea. Many people today find this very offensive, but God's word is very clear that it's not just that we are not back in God's presence, but that we cannot get back into God's presence. We can't figure it out on our own. We can't make a way on our own. This is God's world. We are his creatures, and so we can only come to him on his terms, not our own. But the good news, the gospel, the good news of the Bible is that God has provided the way for us, even though we're deathly and sinful. The story of Israel is a wonderful illustration of that. If you've been reading along before you get to Leviticus and you read the book of Exodus about Israel, you see that they're like this horrible caricature of a three-year-old throwing a tantrum in the middle of the grocery store. They treat God horribly. They whine all the time. They're constantly complaining. They're constantly rejecting him. They don't want what he's given them. And so you would think that God would say, never mind, forget it. I'm not going to do anything for you. I'm not going to give you a way to get back to me. But that's why Leviticus is so amazing. It opens up and God says, here's a way. I will give you a way, even though you've been treating me this way. The sacrifices emphasize various aspects of approaching God, but they all land on being with God. That's the whole point of them. Chapter 1, verse 3 says that this first sacrifice leads to somebody being accepted before the Lord. A few of them say that their smell is pleasing to the Lord. God is pleased when he metaphorically smells what they smell like. And it means it's a way of saying that God is pleased with you as you offer them. A couple of the sacrifices emphasize that not only that we can be forgiven, but that we will be forgiven, even sometimes when you can't even articulate what you've done wrong. Everything in Leviticus about blood and cleanness and holiness, these strange ideas, what is this talking about? All of that language is really talking about life. It's talking about entering into and enjoying the life of God in communion with him. It's talking about what God always made us for. This is why I started the service with Psalm 63. In a poetic way, it's talking about communion with God, being with God. My soul thirsts for you. Your love is better than life. My soul clings to you. This is what all this stuff is all about. It's about enjoying life with God. It's about being in God. Leviticus is all about getting back home. That's why the tabernacle's rituals and ceremonies are oriented from east to west. You start on the east and you come in 
towards the west. Adam and Eve were driven east out of the garden. And so in a sense, the tabernacle is this physical depiction of God's plan to bring us back home to him. The word Eden means delight. It means pleasure. God wants to give us delight in fellowship with him in his life. And so the tabernacle and the sacrifices are really just illustrations of what would ultimately and finally happen when God's son Jesus would come, not only to die for our sins on the cross, not only to rise from the dead a couple days later, not only to ascend into heaven, but even, we're still waiting for this, when he comes back at the end of history to raise us from the dead, and not just us, but also the entire universe. God is going to renew the entire world so that the entire thing becomes something like a garden of delight where we can enjoy him forever. That's what Leviticus is pointing forward to, even for us today. And so that's the big high-level picture. There's a big problem, but there's a bigger solution. But let's zoom in now a little bit on the sacrifices themselves. What do they share in common? There's five of them here. The first thing that we need to see is that they're costly. They're all costly. Okay, so look again there in chapter 1 at what's called the burnt offering. Probably a better translation for that is the ascension offering. It means like going up. You burn the whole thing. The whole thing turns into smoke and it goes up. Um, this sacrifice you bring from your own herd, this is like all the sacrifices, you bring from your own herd or your own flock one of your own animals. And this might seem kind of strange or quaint to us today, but remember, this is an agrarian society. This is basically everybody's livelihood. This is what their world depended on. It was very expensive. It was very important. And then God says, don't just bring me any old cow. The animal, he says, must be blameless, no defects, no imperfections. God does not want your leftovers. God does not want uh, what you have left over when you've taken everything that you think you and your family needs. God says, I want your best, and I want to be first. God's the priority, and so we give him our best. We give so that it hurts. Now, God does provide uh, the opportunity for different kinds of animals or sacrifices for people to bring, depending on how wealthy they are. The poorest of the poor could bring a couple of doves, which were normally easy to find out in the wilderness. Or even sometimes you could just bring grain. If you were so poor you couldn't even find a bird, God says, that's okay. I'll just take a handful of grain. The point is that whoever you are, no matter where you fit into society, God says, I'm first. I want you to show that I'm first. I want you to give to me in a way that's costly to you. Because by doing that, you're showing how valuable I am. You're showing how lovely I am. You're showing that being with me is better than life itself, Psalm 63 says. And the second thing that we need to see, the well, first thing is that they're costly. The second thing you need to see is that they are vicarious. They are substitutes. They're going in place of you. So you pick out Fluffy from your flock. You bring him to the entrance on the east side of the tabernacle. Remember, we're going back to the Garden of Eden, and so I come to the entrance on the east side with my animal. And then I'm not just to, it kind of sounds like, well, put your hand on his head, like give him a little scratch behind the ears. That's not what it's saying. It actually says you're supposed to lean on it. You're supposed to put your weight onto the animal. It's a way of saying, this animal is me. It's a way of saying, I realize that I deserve to die before God's presence, but I also realize that God is willing to accept the death of this blameless animal instead of my death. That's what you're doing when you lean on it. At that point, God says that I, bringing the animal, not the priest, that I am now to slit this animal's throat. 
and then I'm to chop it up into pieces. The priest stands there with a bowl. The priest collects all the blood as you slit the throat. You know, we, we go and we get our meat, and it's in this beautiful saran wrap, styrofoam packages. Uh, I've butchered a few of my chickens. Don't tell the city of Austin. But it's something very different than going to the store and grabbing a nice, clean piece of plastic. Imagine for a second that you are there bringing your animal, you're bringing Fluffy that you've raised from your flock, and you lean on it, and then you slit its throat. Imagine what that would be like. The priest catches the bowl, and depending on the sacrifice, uh, you do different things with the carcass, you do different things with the meat, but in every case, the blood is extremely important. The blood is brought into God's presence. Why is that? In the Old Testament sacrificial system, blood is life. The blood, God says, the blood atones for your life. Now, atonement has a couple of closely related meanings. Uh, It means, first, that it rescues you. When something atones for you, that means it's rescuing you from danger. This is this idea of ransom, kind of almost this idea of payment. But the other idea, and this is related to the first idea, the other idea is that atonement means being cleansed. It means being purified from infection. And so this is where we get this idea of being purified. Leviticus chapter 17, that's in the middle of the book. Leviticus 17 tells us that the creature's blood is its life, symbolically speaking. And so there in Leviticus 17, God says to the Israelites, don't ever eat or drink blood. Probably because doing so would be a symbolic way of usurping God's role as the ruler over life and death. And so with these sacrifices, the priest, as you slit the throat of your animal, the priest is there carefully collecting all the blood in a bowl. He takes the blood, i.e. the life of the blameless animal, remember who now is you, you're the animal now, God takes the blood of you, so to speak, into God's presence, who is himself life. Life can only receive life. Remember, life overwhelms death in the way the Bible thinks things. Life destroys death. And so you bring this life into God's presence And then depending on the various sacrifices, depending on the various festivals, the priest does different things with that bowl of blood in different places. But the basic idea is that the blood rescues you from the danger of sin and the blood cleanses you from the pollution of sin. And so sacrificial blood is something like a vaccine rescuing you from danger and something like a disinfectant something that cleans, something that's dirty. COVID has prepared us very well to understand what Leviticus is talking about. Sin does not just make you guilty, even though that's often how we think about it, and that's true, it does make you guilty. Sin also makes you dirty. And many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. All of the shame, the unworthiness, the anxiety, the desire to hide what you've done, the desire to hide who you really are. But God accepts the sacrificial blood of the blameless victim, and in doing so, God is not only rescuing you, He's also washing you. He's making you clean. He's not only dealing with a guilt problem, He's also dealing with a shame problem. So God provides very graciously for these costly and vicarious sacrifices as a way for Israel to enjoy life with him, to enjoy a relationship with him as the source and the giver of all life. 
But what do each of them tell us about what it means to worship God, what it means to approach Him and enjoy Him? The first one we said, that's chapter 1. It's traditionally called the burnt offering, probably better called the ascension offering. Uh, in many ways, it's the most important of all the offerings uh, all through the Bible. Abraham was commanded to offer up his son Isaac as a burnt offering. Uh, when Noah gets off his boat, uh, he offers burnt offerings to God. They're very important in the Bible. Um, it's certainly the most costly of all the sacrifices. Unlike the other ones where somebody gets to eat part of it after it gets grilled on the altar, in this case, you roast the entire thing to a crisp. You burn up the entire thing on top of this big square altar, which think grill. That's basically what it is. Uh, after the priest splashes blood around the sides of the altar, you take the whole thing and you burn it all up. And again, this is not about destroying the animal. This isn't a picture of destruction. It's a picture of transformation. The point is that you are turning it into something else. You're turning it into smoke, which, of course, rises up into the sky. That's why it's called the ascension offering. And the sky, metaphorically speaking, is where God lives because God is above us. God is ruling over us. And so as the animal is transformed into smoke going up into the sky, it is a picture uh, not only of atonement, although that's part of it, probably especially the rescue side of atonement, but most of all, this sacrifice is a picture of being totally dedicated to God. It's a picture of belonging to God, all of you, not just part of you, not just Sundays, not just some of your money, some of your stuff, but that all of me belongs to God and his purposes and his realm. And so that's why you burn up the entire thing. Now, usually people would offer this ascension offering voluntarily. Uh, you do it because you're grateful for something that God's done for you. Uh, you're grateful for some way that he's helped you or rescued you. Uh, but the main thing is that it emphasizes consecration, that you have been transferred over to God, all of you, that you belong to him, that God deserves everything that we are and that we want to give him everything that we are. Now, Paul seems to allude to this sacrifice in the beginning of Romans chapter 12. He calls Christians to offer up their entire lives to God as not a bloody sacrifice, but as a living sacrifice. Your entire life now is something like a burnt offering. You live everything for God. You do everything for him. God wants and deserves everything about us, not just in a perfunctory way, uh, not just in a begrudged way, but with all of our joy, all of our effort, all of our desire. God says, it's all for me. I want all of it. Now, the second sacrifice, that's Leviticus chapter 2, is called the grain offering. Maybe a better translation for this would be the tribute offering, like, you know, you pay tribute to a king. Uh, this one would go along with lots of other sacrifices in the form of cakes or flour or grain. The basic idea, I think, is that you are recognizing that God is your boss, God is your master, that you give back to him because he's given everything to you. Uh, today, we give our time and our skills and our money to God and to his work in the church and in the world because we know that nothing really belongs to us anyways. God's the boss. We give back to him. Uh, the third one, Leviticus chapter 3, is called the peace offering or maybe the fellowship offering. Uh, this is the only sacrifice where you as the offerer got to eat some of the meat coming off of the grill. Uh, some of it gets burned up for God on the altar. God says, give me the fat and give me the liver. That sounds kind of weird. It's not because God was trying to help the Israelites have a healthy diet. It's because, as we know in Texas with brisket, the fatty part is the best part. God says, give me the best. I want the good cut. So you give that good cut to God, and then you take the rest, and you go and you have a party with your friends and with your family. You celebrate 
uh, that you are in relationship with God and that he has brought you into relationship with other people. The point of it was to show this great joy, this great satisfaction, this great gratitude that I know God, that God knows me, that life in God is a glorious thing, that life in God is a good thing, it's a joyful thing. This sacrifice was entirely voluntary. Uh, And like the first two, it's described as a pleasing aroma before God when you offer it. Part of the point there is that God loves to bring us into communion with himself and with his people. Part of the point is that you never just come to God on your own, not even in modern-day America. You always come to God as part of a community of people with whom we are to celebrate our life in him together. We're going to move on now to the last two sacrifices. So we've had the burnt one, the ascension offering, then the the grain offering, we call it the tribute offering, and then the the peace offering or the communion offering. Now we move on uh, to the last two. They are related to each other and that they both deal with specific kinds of sins. The other ones haven't done that so far. And so these two offerings are always required when you commit those specific kinds of sins. Uh, The first one in chapters 4 and 5, we traditionally call it the sin offering, Uh, but really it should be called the purification offering. The purification offering. It covers unintentional, accidental sin. Uh, Something like in Israel's context, if you accidentally touch something unclean without meaning to, and then you become unclean, you have committed a kind of sin that needs this kind of sacrifice. We'll talk about cleanness and uncleanness in a couple weeks. Um, This also would apply... Uh, you need to commit, offer this sacrifice if you broke a law, one of God's laws that you didn't realize at the time uh, was a law. You didn't know that you were doing it. It'd be like if you were you know, speeding 50 miles an hour in a 30 zone. You said, oh, I didn't know. Well, too bad. You should, it's still something you shouldn't do. Um, these, were, these sacrifices, this is interesting, they were more or less costly. Uh, you needed a more or less valuable kind of animal depending on your role in the community, depending on how much responsibility you had. So that uh, the high priest would have to offer something really serious. If the whole community committed a sin, they would have to offer something comparable to the high priest. If you were just regular old Joe Blow Israelite, you offered something much smaller. Um, Part of the idea there that it's communicating is that the sins and the failures of leaders are far more serious than the sins and the failures of lay people who are serving under them. The New Testament talks about this repeatedly. The book of James says that those who teach the Bible, like me, should be very serious and careful about getting into it because they know, we know, we're going to be judged more strictly than those who merely listen. Uh, This sacrifice also shows us that in God's eyes, sin can be unintentional. Sin can be unconscious. Sin is not just flagrantly and purposefully defying God. Sincerity and good intentions are not enough. This is offensive to the modern world. We tell ourselves, well, I'm not Hitler, I'm not Putin, I've tried hard. The Bible says you're still a sinner. You still fall very short of what God has called you to do. You need God's life also. This sacrifice, the purification offering, has some special rites with the animal's blood inside the tabernacle, not just outside around the grill. And so it emphasizes how this sacrifice cleanses us from the pollution of sin, even an unintentional sin. The last one in chapters 5 and 6, we usually call it the guilt offering, but probably should be translated as something like the reparation offering, the restitution offering. It deals with specific sins also, but mostly ones that have to do with possessions. 
Uh, if you took something that really belonged to God, for example, if you um, took or kept some food that was really supposed to be for the priests at the tabernacle, um, if you've made a false statement in court after taking something that belonged to somebody else, um, there's also this category of sin that falls under this one. I'm not totally sure why, but um, this is also the sacrifice. If you suspect that you've committed some kind of sin, but you don't really know what it is and you can't figure out what it is, God says, okay, we'll offer this sin and you'll be forgiven. Um, God says, in all those cases, offer this offering um, and when you know what you have taken, when you know that you've dealt with some kind of property sin, if I've taken something I shouldn't have taken, if I used something I shouldn't have used, if I took advantage of my neighbor, if I oppressed my neighbor and then I lied about it later, God says part of this offering is not just the sacrifice, but also you need to you know, pay that person back. You need to pay them back a significant amount of interest to make up for the fact that you have cheated them or you have taken something from them. Part of the point and um, there's other parts of the Old Testament that make this point more clearly, but part of the point is that repentance sometimes also involves restitution. Uh, when you have cheated somebody, when you have taken from somebody, uh, maybe kids, like your younger brother, um, when you have taken something from them, it is not enough just to say, I'm sorry. You also need to make your victim whole, and you need to give them extra to make up for the fact that you have wronged them. Another point uh, and for some of you, I think this will be a real encouragement. Another point of this sacrifice is that God can and will forgive us for sins even when you don't know what those sins are. You don't have to be able to come up with a list of everything you've ever done wrong against God and then come to Him and specifically repent for them in order to find His love and His forgiveness. God says, I'll forgive you and I'll, I'll love you even the things you don't even know what you did wrong. And that's for all of us. Honestly, that's most all of our sins. We're not even aware of them. God says, I'll forgive you anyways. I've provided a way for you to be forgiven. The book of Leviticus, uh, to, for, to us at first, may seem kind of grotesque, weirdly irrelevant. It's a shocking, even an offensive picture of a very big problem that human beings have had ever since Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. Not just that we are not right with God, but that we cannot be right with God on our own. We deserve God's judgment. God says death is the air we breathe. St. Augustine said the only, I think I've told you guys this before, he said the only thing that you can say without qualification that is good about human beings is that they exist. This is what he's getting at. This idea that death is at the core of our existence as sinful human beings. All of us is deformed. All of us is twisted. But the God of life has made a way for us to come back home to him. The bad news behind that is very sobering. But the bad news behind that, the big problem behind that, is what makes this such wonderfully good news. It's what makes it so joyful to read something like Leviticus and see what it's pointing to. As one author puts it, here you see in Leviticus that the way back to the garden is through a bloody knife and a burning altar. There is no other way to get back home, God says. We see, of course, as Christians today, we see what Leviticus has been pointing to all along. We read this earlier in the book of Hebrews. Not to the blood of animals. They weren't actually atoning for people's sins. God was acting as if they were. He was treating the people as if the blood of animals was really doing it. All along, for us today, they point to the blood of Jesus. Jesus is God's perfect sacrifice given to us, given for us, in order to bring us back home to him. Jesus was the truly innocent sacrifice Jesus gave himself entirely over to God in love and obedience. 
And yet, as the, one, the only one who's ever lived, who perfectly obeyed God, he went to the cross as the loving substitute for sinners. On the cross, he was consumed by God's wrath for sin so that we could be rescued from its danger, so that we could be cleansed from its pollution. Jesus took on himself the bloody knife and the burning altar so that in your communion with him, you could also get home to God and find communion with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for providing a sacrifice for us. As strange as it seems to us, as much as we might like to think that we don't need it, you have told us clearly that we need blood. We need perfect blood if we are to come back to you. We need life because you are life and we are death. Make us more joyful. Help us to remember how much you've given us. Keep us from being blasé and apathetic about your grace and your kindness. Help us to see how much it cost you, how much it cost Jesus. And in response, Lord, help us to live with joy and with generosity and with living sacrifice toward you in our entire lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.